Welcome to the Skies Were Under podcast, hosted by me, Rachel Wright. This podcast is created by and for parents of people with disabilities and the many practitioners who support us. It's just for all of us who are trying to get from one end of the week to the other whilst bridging the gap between the life we expected and the one we're actually living. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm founder and director of Born at the Right Time. I'm a qualified nurse, parent of three, and I've got an eldest son who loves swimming, pointless, and has complex disabilities. I wrote the memoir, The Skies I'm Under, and I'm thrilled you've joined us for another episode of The Skies We're Under podcast, which shares the stories of fellow parents so we can all feel a little less alone and a little more understood. Today, I get to chat to Kenny and Tutu Papula who are husband and wife founders of Black Special Needs Parents. Having been brought up in Nigeria, they're now raising two children in the UK, one of whom has complex disabilities. I love this conversation, although Kenny was slightly outnumbered. We did get to talk about how dads are often underrepresented and women are more advanced. Kenny said it himself. We unpick a bit of the typical male-female response to things and discuss the sense of joy and loss when a child develops typically and how their milestones can seem effortless. It's a really comforting, lovely conversation which raises some really important issues about diversity and representation, as well as so many of the similarities which we share around our complex emotions. Hello and welcome to the Skies Wonder podcast and I'm super excited to have as guests today Kenny and Tutu Papula who are community managers of Black Special Needs Parent Support Network UK. Uh, they're focused on bringing together a group of Black SND parents where they can feel accepted, included and visible. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi Rachel. Hi Rachel, thanks for having us on. Ah, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to meet you and I guess where I want to start, as a complete rom-com fan who was proposed to in a John Lewis car park, we won't go into that, can you tell me how you both met? Yes, well you can have a word with my husband about that scenario, Uh, but where you both met and how does your story start with each other? before we get on to your family? That's an interesting one. You need to promise me not to laugh. Okay. Is it, it can't be any worse than John Lewis, can it? Well, I'll let you decide. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we actually met many years ago while we were in university. Okay. Where were you at university? In Nigeria. Okay. So we were in the same uni, but we never said a word to each other. Okay, so really magnetic, like really sparks were flying right from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, so we knew of each other and we have mutual friends, but we never really spoke. Uh Which we just didn't have any any reason to. (laughs) But it was one of those things that it was a small school at the time, so we're the first set of students in the school. So everybody knew each other. So it was a case that everybody knew everybody. So Yeah. Yeah. So you both looked at each other and thought... Nah, don't want to talk to them. No, there was just, there's no reason to it. This is why I think it's a bit funny. We just never really had any cause to speak to each other. Okay, okay. And we were there for four years. So were you doing, presumably you were doing different courses then. What's, what's your, what are your, what's your passion? What do you both like doing? I studied political science and public administration. Mm-hmm. I studied computer science and yeah, I work in IT. Okay. So we just didn't 
have any our past our past across at all. Okay. Now the funny bit was we then met in London um many years after graduation at a party. Aww. And I thought, I know this guy from my uni. And then we obviously we then spoke. He then said, Oh yeah, it was me and my twin brother. And I thought, what? What twin brother? <laughs> it then turns out that there were two of them there, but they, they're quite identical. Not so much now, but they did. They were back then. Okay. And I didn't realize there were two people. I thought I'm just the same person. <laughs> that person likes to change his clothes a lot. Why? He's no. I just didn't. He then says to me, "No, no, there were two of us." I said, "No, it was just you." I said, "No, no, there were two. We were definitely two. And I thought, "Oh my god." That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like she said, we reconnected a few years after finishing uni. Yeah, the friendship blossomed, and yeah, and like they say, the, the rest is history. Yeah. We're ten how, years married this year. How many years? Ten years this ten year. Ten years, very good. Yes, yeah. I can't believe I don't feel yeah, like I'm old enough to marry for really ten fast. years. You don't look old enough. I know this is audio, but you could just there's there's no we just wouldn't. You would not imagine yeah. it. I know I'm 22 years married. A couple of weeks ago. Oh wow! No, you're not. Yes, you are. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, that John Lewis car park did us proud. So the whole time you've been married, you've lived in the UK. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And your two children tell us about your the rest of your family. So we have two children. We have a girl who is seven. She'll be eight this year. And then we have an almost four year old going on 14. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so yeah, it's got, it's got a bit of sass. Um, so yeah, our girl is older. She's almost eight. And then we have an almost four year old. And so you've got a four year old with sass and tell us about the extra support that your daughter has. So our daughter has a rare condition. Mm -hmm. Um, it's called the 1P36 chromosomal deletion. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that impacts her is that she has delays in all areas of development. Okay. So she's delayed with everything. And she is currently peg-fed and she has a, a, she's a wheelchair user as well. So we do everything for her. So she needs support with everything. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that, it sounds really terrible. But once you put that to the side in terms of her personality, she's very bubbly. Mm -hmm. And you, you would know she's there. If she's there, so yeah, if she's yeah. quiet, if she's if the house is quiet, something is not right. She's not well or something. <laughs> <laughs> so she's always giggling, very happy, very joyful girl. But yeah, so we try to see her through that lens, not just to look at her, you know, from her disability. Well, that's it. And I think often whenever I'm thinking about my kids, it's not their, the things that make them slightly more complicated than their siblings. It's the extra needs, the extra things that I need to do for them that makes life complicated or the number of people yes. that I'm required to kind of communicate and liaise with and everything like that. Well, first of all, I feel like we need to speak about the elephant in the room and that is that you work together on this whole project of black special needs parents and uh, how does that work who's the real boss and who's the one who kind of makes the tea and coffee 
Do you want to go? Yeah, I'll sit. <laughs> 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 I you did that. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that gives her, that gives, that gives them um, part of the answers, really. Uh, so I'll say two, two. Can't help myself, though, can I? Yeah, yeah. No, but to be fair, um, I think it's a joint enterprise, but I'll say Tutu does most of the heavy lifting. Um, she's, a, she's a lot more social, social. She's, <laughs> She's, she's, she'll put herself out there. So if you leave it to me, it will just stay in the background. So I appreciate her putting in all the effort because she's able to just interact with people and, and get things going. She so, talks a lot is what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> putting, it in, yeah putting it mildly. But yeah, I mean, I say that to say that it's good to have her just being able to put herself out there. I mean, for us guys, we're a bit more reserved and all, but she puts herself out there. So yeah. We do it jointly, but she does most of the heavy lifting. If it's anything to do with the IT stuff of things, yeah, I'll heavily pick you that up. You swoop in with your cape and superhero, yeah, yeah, and sort it out. Yeah, I think, you know, like they say, teamwork make the dream work. Mm-hmm. And I think just having that extra hand really helps because we've been able to go as far as we've reached because mm. both hands are, are involved. If it was just left to her, it would be quick for her to burn out and... Yeah, always happy to help out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I have this problem where I just take everything on and I just do everything. And then I begin to wonder, oh, am I going to accomplish all of this? I'm so tired. That's a completely new phenomenon to me there, Tutu. I don't realise that at all. Like, hey, sure? Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you and look then at your dad and you're like... I'm tired. It's too much. I think you kind of downplay your role a little bit, though. It's not just the IT <laughs> stuff. Well, you've got the dads group, haven't you? So, and I think dads are underserved in that way. And is it because the platforms and the way social media is, or is it because women actually are more represented when it comes to being the primary carers for young people and for adults? And children, that your kind of natural form of communication isn't necessarily sort of sitting and, you know, drinking tea or doing whatever. That we find communication accessible in different ways. Tell us about your dad's group. How's, how's that kind of gone? Or are you all just thinking that it's a really good idea and sitting and looking at it? <laughs> um, for that, is, we're still gradually building it i've dedicated this year to really putting a bit more effort to it because Mm. like you said um women are a bit overrepresented in that space because of the communication um, Mm. advancements women have um i'm glad that you said that women put that on the (laughs) more advanced i heard that have more advanced communication. If you want, we'll we'll take that out, um, Tutu, and put that as our uh, tagline for this episode. Just would you know? Just like take that little slot out where can you say women are more advanced? More advanced. End of story. <laughs> End of story. Full stop. No, but uh, but the men also have their strong points. We tend to go for it. We just solution based, and I think that's what you tend to see as well in the special needs journey, the men are more focused on the breadwinning side of things where, mm-hmm. okay, let mother take care of the emotional needs. I'll go out there, do the breadwinning stuff, try and bring more bread into the house. But mm-hmm. uh, what we found with our experience doing this for eight years now is that you need it too. And the kids recognize it as well. So like with our daughter, you see her, 
She appreciates everything I do for her. When she's having a little bit of a whinge, if mom is, is struggling, when I go in, you see that she recognizes that, okay, this is a new hand, and she, 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 she recognizes it as well. So that's what I'm trying to do with the, with the mm. men group as well, to say children also appreciate the emotional needs they can get, the emotional support they can get from the dads as well. It's also about supporting partners through the process as well, emotional support. Apart from just going out there, getting the bread, we also need to put those emotional support. So, yeah, this year is going to be the year I try to push it. I've identified a few men that... Hallelujah! Um, over, over the course of the year, I'll look to create more retreat sessions where yeah, we just yeah, work yeah. as men to see how we can um, forge ahead. Born the Right Time is a proud partner of Simple Stuff Works. Together, we champion the protection of people's bodies through engaging and enjoyable training, looking at 24-hour postural care and specifically the importance of lying support. Whether you're a novice wanting a short three-hour online course taking you through the basics, a specialist practitioner needing comprehensive training or anything in between, we have a range of CPD certified courses just for you. Find out more at www.bornattherighttime.com where we give you the language, skills and confidence to protect people through excellence in 24-hour postural care. So I am really interested, uh, like you said, about that focus between the kind of hands-on day-to-day kind of emotional work that typically a woman sort of has taken on and the kind of, okay, someone's got to make sure, you know, especially when, because of the extent of that networking that we've said, the amount of work that's logistically involved in caring for a child, it's not just their physical needs on a day-to-day, but it's then the managing the diary and the appointments and the therapies and researching options and all that kind of stuff that is very time-consuming. Initially, there is this natural well, there was in our house anyway, there was this, I was then on maternity leave when my child was born. And so naturally I started doing that sort of stuff. And although my husband tried to go to as many appointments as he could, obviously he's working in order to sustain the whole family because I'm not working um, in the same way. And then we're sort of 17 down years down the road. And a few years ago, we kind of turned around and was like, how did this happen? Like we weren't this uneven to start off with. There wasn't, we didn't try to be a traditional, I'm the person at home doing the laundry and the caring and the everything else. Like I say, it's not even the care, but the burden of arranging everything and doing everything is so big that it typically lands with one person because splitting it, certainly for us, it felt like you couldn't have half the information. Well, I'll deal with everyone from health, but you deal with everyone from social care. Or you, do you mean it doesn't, it doesn't really work. How do you manage to, how do you sort of share that in your home as far as kind of who, that caring aspect of the roles and responsibilities? I can say we've nailed it and we now have a system. I think it is evolving. We started in a typical, in a similar way to what you've just described, where we, I was on maternity leave when she was born. And I, obviously, it's like the the rug gets pulled from under your feet. Mm. You know, what you envisaged your, the first year to be, it's not what it is. 
Yeah. Certainly for us. I can't remember anything that happened before our first birthday. I think my mind has kind of blocked it out because I was just basically from hospital to hospital. So that was what I kind of spent the whole of my maternity leave doing. Sorry to interrupt. Was your was her diagnosis really clear from the very beginning, or was that something no. that kind of no? No. Okay. So not during pregnancy, not even at birth. Yeah. So I, I didn't really. We didn't really know. It was around the six week six mark. No, I think I think she was about six weeks when I kind of noticed that she, we weren't connecting the way I I thought we would be. Like she would look at me, but she would look past me. Mm. I, I think I flagged it up to you and I said, why why is she not looking at me? Well, what she is? She's looking mm. at you. What, what you what do you want? I said, no, I don't feel like I feel like she's looking past me. She's looking in my direction, but she's not getting that eye connection. Yeah, the smiling oh, no, that you would expect that. from yeah. a baby that wasn't her. I mean, she was cute, but I thought something wasn't quite right. So that kind of kick-started the process of, you know, me First, going to see the GP. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember the GP saying to me, oh, and I th- I thought there was some, because she used to have seizures in the early days, infantile spasms. They weren't so obvious, but I filmed it and I took it to the GP and I said, with a combination of these things, I think something's not right. And I think you should do some tests and blah, blah, blah. She, oh, you know, some kids are like that. You know, she would grow up. She may grow up. Mm. I'm like, not really. I think I, I need a test of some kind. I didn't even know what test I need. I said, can I see a pediatrician? Okay, I'll, I'll refer you, but I don't think it's a big deal. Yeah, do that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, let's see how that pans out. Yeah, and that kind of kick-started a whole process of tests and more tests and so in terms of how we balance are from the beginning you know I had the job I had my career and everything going so were you we, we thought everything was going well so I had to roll that back because I just couldn't physically do all this there was a time we sat down we were doing the calendar sharing thing splitting appointments and we both had 15 appointments each yeah. Mm. And, and that's one practical step there for anyone listening is yeah. about what we did about sharing the calendars because you get a lot of letters coming through from the GP or from say Great, Greater Mount Street you get different appointments and you've got like lots of clinic appointments you, you need to do so what we we did from the early on days was to share our calendar okay which appointments can you go to and then after that we debrief on each appointment so the ones i was able to go it's okay this is what we discussed and the one you were able to go this is what we discussed because what you want is that continuity because in our case we we have to go to different hospitals and speak to different consultants you want to be able to give them the same set of information because mm-hmm. NHS, that's one thing we found with the NHS. Knowledge sharing and data sharing within different is not the best. So as a team, you want that's to very share... That's reserved of you, Kenny. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice way to put it, but yeah, we get the gist. work that could be done in the information sharing between NHS trusts. Yeah, yeah they just don't, they don't talk to each other, so... It's like a spoke hub on a wheel, isn't it? It's like all this information, you have all this, these people on the periphery who are all vitally trying to bring in their knowledge and their expertise, but it all comes to you. And that person over on one spoke isn't going to know what's happened on the other side of the wheel unless you have disseminated that information, unless you have shared it across. In the end, do you know what we, end up, we ended up doing? Like Chris had a big folder right and just did filing so we just filed paperwork by professional 
So there's cardiology, there's this, there's that. So every time we went for an appointment, you would see us carrying this massive folder into hospital <laughs> because you can, you're almost certain that when you get there, they don't know what the other professional is doing. So, okay, oh, don't worry, I'll help you with that. Let me Here find this. <laughs> oh, there it is. One piece of paper, read that. But it's not easy. It's very time consuming. We had to share that. I wouldn't say that we shared it perfectly because I don't want to mm-hmm. give an impression that, oh, we're just perfect. We're excellent. Great. <laughs> it's not. Okay. You know, sometimes it works. A lot of times it didn't. And sometimes you're just tired. You don't want to deal with the extras that you've got to do on top of everything else. So that's why I said at the beginning that I feel like we're evolving. How we did it at the beginning, we don't do it with as much intensity now. But that's because we've learned a few things along the way. And and it makes a difference when you've got another child. Like as soon as you have two children and you've got your, you know, a child who's going to typical nurseries and, you know, you want to give them the social interactions and all that kind of stuff. Like it's a different. It is. It's a different because you suddenly have like four people who need their needs met, not just three or one if you're just thinking about your child. And also, if you have, if the second child doesn't, like in our case, doesn't have disabilities or complex needs, you then begin to see the difference in the development. And there is, if I'm going to be honest, sometimes a level of anger, um, not towards the child, but just towards the situation when you see one child has just walked without needing help with physio, without needing assistance with this and that. They've just... When it was time for them to eat, they've just basically reached for a spoon and scooped the food into their mouth. You know, you didn't need to do the dance and the drama that came with the first oh, one. Then it makes you hungry and that, you know... It's like learning we... parenting all over again. Yeah. So like us, we've had, we had like five years where we were parenting in a, in a different way. In a certain way. way. And then now we have a new one and then we're having to learn relearn what we thought a typical parent should do but yeah it's the it's good yeah so my son's our eldest the, my son who's got disabilities is our eldest and I, I think you're right I mean I remember when my second son sort of just rolled over and I was like like you say Tutu it's like that kind of oh my goodness I didn't help his arm I didn't support just back did and it. do this it just did it and it's like it's like they've gone into it's some star trek-esque sort of light speed like do you know what i mean it's just yeah. the process speeds up whereas you're used to looking at every little grimace and every little hand movement and every little noise to try and interpret and understand and you know bring it in suddenly there's like Oh my goodness, they've learnt this thing. I didn't even teach them that thing. How did that happen? What who who taught them that? Where'd that come from? Yeah. I remember one time my husband and I sat and we were sitting on the sofa and my son, I'd walked in and put him down and he just sat and played with his toys. And we both just were like, Look at his spine. Can you just it just is so straight. Yeah. It's just so do you know what I mean? This kind you of notice everything. How it just all feels miraculous, you know, like oh my goodness, how did you feel a bit angry a little bit? Maybe angry is not the right word, that your first didn't just have that, like they missed out on that opportunity? Yeah, so I think I felt a greater sense of loss, like a real... It was like there was a an element of 
him not having those things felt sad. You know, him not looking me in the eyes and smiling when I went into a room was sad. Then when I got that with my other son, it was beautiful and miraculous and marvellous. And in, in that same moment, yeah, heartbreaking at that not being the case for both of them. And I think there's so much research around that Carmelipi, that kind of two two opposing emotions at the same time. Emotions, yeah. You know, it's that same thing, your second child looking at you and giving you a big grin in the face when you walk into the room, which is like, oh, that's amazing. And oh my goodness, why is that not what happens with all my children? Like, yeah. And it's really hard to kind of, and like you said also, you says not towards the child, it's really hard to disentangle those emotions as well, to kind of feel like you can honour and express how you're feeling and still hold, but that isn't towards them. I love them. I'll do anything for them. I'll, you know, I'll walk over hot coals for my child, but there is still loss and there are still complexities in how I feel about this situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a mix of emotions. Sometimes they are feeling many things at the same time and they're so opposing as well. So you're very happy and then you're also equally sad. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, And I just feel like that's like our life. Yeah. But, but in our case, um, like with Olivia's condition, because it's a chromosomal deletion and it's all about the delays, I mean, for me, I just draw strength with that as well to say, okay, younger one is able to do this, eventually you'll catch up. So we need to do what we can to help you catch up to that level. So that's why we'll do everything to get all that physio done, go to the appointments, mm. do more research on what other therapies we can do, knowing that at some point she might eventually get there. So it's about knowing, okay, we know somebody that is able to do this effortlessly. Let's give you the assistant. Let's do everything we can to see if we can get you to that level as well. So, and there we have the male and the female. We have the woman saying, it just feels so sad and stuff. Mind, yes, but we'll use that information and we'll fix it with that information. That's I'm exactly not, what would be happening in my I'm not going to pretend that doesn't drive me not mad pretend, It's not about saying it's not emotional, but it's like use those emotions and let's have a plan. So that, yeah. that we're going to drive that to do A, B, C, and we're going to make it. Well, sometimes I don't want to plan. I just want to, I, I just, just want to just let me be sad. Yeah. I don't want you to fix my sadness. I don't want my sad to be a motivator. No, let me just thing. have my moment. Let's just eat chocolate and watch films and have a wee cry. All right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but this, you can tell what happens in our household. <laughs> I feel like I should be doing this interview with my husband in order to even it out a little bit. But yes. I think it's true. And I think what's really important is that we have the language for those emotions and we have the language for saying, because language is really important. And within SEN and sort of disability, language is very strong as far as uh, is somebody autistic or does they do they have autism and are they disabled or is it SEN or is it? And I think when, you know, you've chosen to call the sort of the groups that you're putting together as black SEN, within the diversity and culture and getting to grips with the differences and the things that unite us what are the important sort of words and the language that sort of you use to try and identify yourself and the people like you 
you know, your tribe, your group of parents? And is there a right and a wrong way of doing it? Yeah, there is. That's the simple answer. Yes, there is. Tell Quickly, quickly tell me if I've done it wrong. There is a right way. There is a wrong way. And we're not always going to agree on what is the right or wrong way. There you go. So the reason we've got for that name is that it goes back to why we started it. When we got the diagnosis for our child, and um, first thing I did after Googling the symptoms and everything and having a good cry Mm -hmm. was to go and look for other people. And um, so we're looking for like different groups, community found some in the US, some in the UK, some everywhere. We didn't find black people Mm. within that disability parenting type space. So we thought, if I were, at the time, I started Googling black disabled yeah. people. I started Googling black parents with disabled children. All manner of keyword search. I was, It wasn't really coming up with anything. So the reason we've gone for that name is if somebody were to be in distress or they've just had a diagnosis or they're looking for a community, what would they be looking for? Mm. And we've just said, okay, let's just call it what it is. Yeah. We're black yeah. people and we have, you know, children, young people who have additional needs who are disabled. And that's why we've just gone for that. Yeah. Just purely for SEO reasons, nothing more. <laughs> no, but I think it's really important. Like, as is true with language, when we're talking about how we label disabled people, it, you go to the people who you're talking about, who we're labeled, and it's their decision. <laughs> like, it's your decision what you get, what you identify is or whatever. And I just think sometimes we can use it to prevent us from doing anything you know we get so caught up with what's the right way to do anything that we don't do anything at all when actually we just need to say okay you know how do I do this right you know it's intention isn't it it's like saying my intention is to recognize the things that unite us as in our children both have got disabilities and the things that distinguish and uh, diversify us as that we come from different cultures and how people see us differently and the power that I have as a white woman in a conversation is going to be different to you as a black couple in the conversation that representation is really really important like one of the reasons I recognize as a parent of a child with really complex needs one of the things that makes me feel isolated is feeling like I'm the odd one out you know, it's feeling like I, I don't have anybody else or my peers who can really identify with my experience. And what's really important is you saying there's more layers to that. You know, it isn't just SEN, therefore we're all, we're all on an equal, we're all on a par. There are layers to that power imbalance. There's layers to that sense of isolation, to that, exactly as you said, not feeling represented in the people who there's really small group of people that you have the same condition as your daughter is even smaller when you're trying to get the cultural similarities or you know all that other stuff what do you think is the main difference between for as a black person in the UK like where do you see the differences in your experience versus what you know someone who's white or other you know, where do you see the differences as far as your experience? So I'm going to start that by saying that, you know, black people are not a monolith. Explain. So even when we say black special needs parent, there's no single representation of all of us. Absolutely. Because we've all come again within, you know, 
the black ethnicity, black race, there are different layers as well. Mm-hmm. Somebody from the Caribbean, someone from Africa, someone from Africa born an immigrant in the UK, and somebody indigenously from the UK but black. Mm, yeah, completely. So there is no single black story, so to say. So we need to have that back yes. of our minds. So having said that, one thing that seems to cut across most groups is the issue of acceptance of disability and also an understanding of what it actually is. Sometimes I would say that there are some cultural nuances, nuances to, you know, have to being disabled to, to being disabled mm. and also people's understanding of how you get to be disabled is I've heard some really interesting stories yeah. about what people's understanding is. So within our culture, and I use that loosely, some of those issues are why people don't seek out support from others. And um, again, representation is very low. There is a reason for that. There is the racism part of it, which is if you're already experiencing some sort of discrimination in other areas of your life, that naturally it would impact how you parent mm-hmm. and how you parent as a disabled, you know, a disabled child. Yes. How you're able to use your voice in terms of advocacy, how people hear you. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you're saying something, somebody's hearing something and then you're like, am I not speaking English to you? Like... Are we not speaking to each other in the same language? But you're hearing me differently to what I'm saying. So those nuances are what makes it different. You know, it creates a slightly different experience for uh, people who are, you know, from you know, a black background. Also, if I'll add, um, considering that, yeah, yeah, in the UK, we're ethnic minority. So in terms of, like, conditions like this... Like, we're a global majority. Yeah. But we'll yeah. not go into that. Yeah, but- <laughs> But in, in terms of like the UK demographics, what we also find is when talking to consultants or medical practitioners, they don't get to see a lot of people that look like us. Mm-hmm. So most of their experience, unfortunately, would have been working with children that don't look like us. Mm. So some of the procedures they would suggest are things that they've only done with people with their same skin color. Also, as a community... Um, we're very spiritual. A lot of like from African and Caribbean are very spiritual and don't will necessarily not submit themselves to some medical yeah. experiences. So like exploration. Yeah, exploration as well. So like if there was a trial that was to come out, more often than not, they'll be a bit hesitant to submit themselves. So the data as well is what's lacking as well. And that's what we're helping we can do with this forum we have where we encourage people within the community to submit themselves to be part of the community yeah and also the understanding of disability and the support that people are able to access within their family so the family is the small unit of society right and Mm. if you're already fighting within your family to be accepted where your family is the place where you know you should just accept each other no matter how crazy you are 
your love. Yeah. It should be a level of acceptance. But if you're already fighting for acceptance with your child, you know, with your young person within your family, that's tough. That's really difficult. So that kind of skills your experience as well. So you, you're not really looking to reach out and look for support because it's just already difficult to start with. Yeah, sticking your neck out is already vulnerable. Yeah. Like you already feel set apart in the waiting room or on the, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like you're being expected to make yourself hyper vulnerable to, and I, I think I, what you just said about, you know, there isn't, there's not one black story. And, you know, we say that within disability training and stuff, you know, just because I can tell you the story of my son with cerebral palsy, it doesn't mean, you know, everybody who has cerebral palsy you don't know how to treat every person who has that sort of that kind of condition in the same way just because well I've got a really good friend from Nigeria I live with her that means I know nothing I mean you know we lived together 20 years ago but that doesn't mean I know everybody who's ever come from you know one thing that really struck me when I was chatting to a friend and she was saying how you know we talk about fighting within parents of disabled children quite a lot the need to fight and to advocate and to whatever and as soon as you bring in ethnicity and culture then in the same way you get a sort of an angry woman being aggressive and an angry man being assertive you know you have an angry black woman yeah they're just aggressive that's how they all are black woman versus a white you know it whether whether we advocacy versus aggression you know is so tainted and whether we like it or not we have a very everybody has a filtered perspective we all see it from a certain point of view we need to acknowledge the complexity yeah and sometimes as well professionals the way some there's an assumption because of that assumption that professionals have sometimes it negatively impacts you know black parents when they go for these appointments. I'll give you an example. It's when you make an assumption that I'm not going to be available to take my child for therapy because I would be working because black people work all the time. And because of that, <laughs> you don't even share it with me. So yeah, I don't even get an opportunity. Sure. You don't even give me the opportunity to choose whether this is something that I want to do or this is something I'm interested in. Or give me, You've just assumed that, you know, because I'm a black parent, you might not have said it out, but you're not sharing that information with me. You've already made that judgment. What has that said about the assumptions being made? Yeah, so if I'm not part of a community, or, which is why we make an active effort, a bit too much sometimes, to network with other people so that we know what everybody's doing we know what they were told at the appointment sometimes we don't feel like we get the same information so now if we were not going that step further to do that sometimes this is where the inequality in the you know health and social care you know you know is a social worker not sharing information uh, when I was asking, if, I was asking, so what's there in terms of respite? What's available in terms of activities and all of those things? Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily give you all that information. But I've, because I've gone online and I've downloaded too many things that I should, I should, I've gone into Google Rabbit All. And then I'm saying to you, <laughs> tell me about this. What is direct payment? Where is the local, you know, what do I need to do? With you? Where's the short breaks funding going? Where's the, yeah. Yeah, but. Also, if you think about it, there is a sense that, you know, 
black people don't let their children stay overnight somewhere else. Okay. Okay. For some, it would be true, but then for some white people, it's true as well. That's true, exactly. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But then yeah. there's that assumption, and because of that, you haven't shared information on over overnight respite with me because you've just made an assumption that assumption. I'm not going to let my child mm. stay there or maybe they wouldn't have the right food. I've had a parent say to me about, oh, they didn't think that they would be able to cater fully to a son's diet. And I said, well, did they have that conversation with you? You're not having that conversation with that parent. You've deprived them and you've widened the gap even more. And I'm sure there, there are adjustments that can be made to bridge it somehow. Yes, you may not have the diet that he's used to. He's got autism and he's, he wants to eat certain foods. But I'm sure when you speak to the parent, I'm sure you can work something out. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm sh and that's the conversation you have with every child who has food sensitivities because of their, you know, autism. You know, that that's, do you know what I mean? That's not... But this is the reality. Yeah, entirely. So if you think about the fact that you've got to fight for this, fight for services, you've got to argue with your, with, you know, with the doctor, with the consultant, you have to go back and forth, write many letters. And then this as well. At some point, you, at what point do you begin to think, you know what, I'll be bothered with all of this? I also wonder, so I'm often sort of feel like I'm banging my head against a brick wall when I'm talking to different practitioners and stuff or within systems and things and I feel like I would be so second guessing everything about where's the source of this reluctance is this you know where are the assumptions and presumptions that's bringing you to this decision is this because of my culture this is because of my color this is do you know what I mean whether or not it was there I think I would constantly be because I feel like I do that already I feel like I'm already think that from a parent point of view. Oh, you're just saying that because I'm a parent. Like you're not giving me enough respect in this situation because you don't think I'm a professional in this context because you don't think I'm an expertise because you're whatever. And I think if I had a lifetime of experiencing the power imbalance within my life before I even became the parent of a child with disabilities, I think I would be you know, so much more hypervigilant of that power imbalance and so much more kind of potentially defensive. But, you know, because I just, it would be just another layer potentially of... So imagine you're, if you're doing that, imagine you were black, Rachel. I know. And you're also trying not to come across as exactly. an angry black and woman. And I don't want to be an angry no. black Where is the balance? Mm. Yeah. It's all the stereotypes. With all the stereotypes well. of... Yeah. You know, this is people's perception of me where I can't just show my, I can't be angry about something yeah. without people attributing it to, you know, my race in a way. But as specialist parents, we're, we're going to be angry because we have to raise our voice because otherwise this is how, this is how the advocacy happens because otherwise nothing really. So whilst I'm trying to rein myself back, I'm not feel, I don't feel like I'm being my full self. Yeah. Then, then the only person that's going to lose out from that is this person I'm caring for who I love so much because I'm trying to play nice. <laughs> yeah, because you're walking that tightrope, that tightrope that all parents walk to keep everyone on side. Your tightrope's even thinner, isn't it? Yeah, and if you're doing that on very little sleep already... Then it's a lose, yeah. Yeah. 
all at the right time, we're passionate about improving the lives of people with complex disabilities, whether it's through supporting their family, CPD certified training for practitioners, or influencing policymakers and providers to turn rhetoric into reality. You can find out more about our work, whether it's book on a parent workshop, attend a live podcast event, or check out our range of practitioner training in communication, collaboration, and personalised care by visiting our website, www.bornattherighttime.com. We're running out of time already. We've been talking for so long already. Oh gosh, is that a time? I know. How did that happen? So I wanted to quickly, briefly, I've got a, a rapid fire questions to ask you. But before that, I wanted to quickly touch on, you mentioned about the spirituality and culture within culture and faith. So I was brought up in the church and I've got a faith. What it's like now, I'm not really sure. I read in your book, Rachel. That's interesting. Let's not unpack that right at this minute. But I have certainly had some really harmful, hurtful things said from a church and and sort of spiritual perspective. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you could see Tutu and Kenny at the minute, they are nodding <laughs> profusely. <laughs> Which is not quite so good on a podcast because you can't actually see them. Um, what's been your experience? But it needs to be quick because we're running out of time. So with regards to faith, a lot of things I'm going to say, I know that now, I did not know that at the time, is that we look to our spiritual leaders for guidance and um, we forget that they're humans as well. And some of them, they don't know as much as you do as a parent. So our experience initially we've had people say to us that you know our child's disabilities because of us because we're not praying enough we're not praying enough we're not um, believing enough and we our faith is not strong make sure we had a stronger faith we try harder all of this can if you put more coins in that slot machine of prayer you'd get there in the end you'd get the jackpot you're just not sing more pray more read the bible more and that's the, the, I mean, those are really hurtful things to say to anyone, really. And it did make me also, I think maybe Kenny, well, maybe Kenny probably less vocal about his, but I think you already know how that goes. <laughs> More resentful of my faith in a way. But over time, I've just come to realize that a lot of these people that are saying this are saying out of ignorance. And also the sense to try and fix things because... You know, they're the spiritual leaders. They should be fixing this. The pastors, they should know. But it's okay to say, look, I don't know much about this disability, disability thing. Mm, like, mm, why don't we mm. learn together and what can I do to support you? So we've gone from one end of it to the other end where we attend a church now that has a send ministry. ministry. Mm-hmm. And it's not just all disabled children in one room. They're actually grouped according to ability. Amazing. So that way they can still access, you know, faith in a way that is relevant to them. So if you're working and if you believe that, if you believe it, that, you know, it's because of something you've done, that's another layer of complexity that you've got to navigate. So a lot of people from our background are struggling with this as well, where they feel like this is part of their, something that they've done, something that they've caused. And it's part of the things that we address is to say, you know, it's not you. And it's nice for them to go to a place like if they go into any send parents Facebook group, for example, they don't feel like they can mention that there because yeah. there might be people who are, you know, 80s there. So I'm not sure of their faith. And, and they would just say, oh, don't worry, just stop going there. You can't just say to somebody, just don't go to church anymore. It's a big part of their life. Yeah. 
if it's a big part, it's a big part of your life. So they need a safe space. And a big part of their support and their community and how they've understood and looked at the world and seen the world for many years. Their whole life. Yeah. I think also one thing I'll touch on with regards to spirituality is also our perception of miracles. Because of how we've been taught about miracles, a lot of like really um, faith-based um, churches and all always believe in like that instant miracle where it flips, it, it practically goes at 360. But what we find is we tend to look for the little miracles and things we we experience with mm-hmm. our child. So over the eight years, we've seen lots of miracles, things that I would have never imagined she would have been able to do. She's been able to do. So we say those are miracles because the medical practitioners would have thought that, oh, she'll never do this, she'll never do that. But we are seeing it. So those are the miracles we hold on to. But some of our faith-based leaders are looking at something that just flips on. They're looking at a completely different, yeah, they're not... You get yeah. up from a wheelchair just yeah. like that yeah, and start yeah, walking. Praise the Lord. Yeah. But the miracle of the family of the fact that there are still two parents caring. For me, I would say that's a big miracle. You're not dead. Yeah, that's it. Well done, you. That's the miracle. I haven't strangled him yet. (laughs) You know, so it's just important not to lose sight of those things. Yeah. I mean, that was a big transition for us as far as... um, we're just real that realization that we're looking at the wrong stuff. Like what's what's important, what's valuable, what do we really value in our lives and in our hearts and and is it like is it like how fast? Like are we all trying to be Usain Bolt? And if we're not Usain Bolt, are we all failing and need to be praying harder because we're not running fast enough? Like that's the end point of this whole, you know, strength, prosperity, health type kind of message right we really have to be very quick now in this rapid fire what we'll do is we'll take it in turns so Tutu do you want to go first I'm going to very quickly ask you what was your favorite subject in school social studies see always being touchy-feely um Kenny you're a superhero what's your chosen superpower fly the ability to fly oh do you know what I mean that's so consistent so many people say fly all right Tutu what's an ordinary moment that brings you joy listening to music and eating something nice yeah oh eating Kenny what was the last photo you took it was actually a selfie with our youngest ah nice very good Tutu if you were to win a tv reality show which one would it be Oh, God, I don't watch reality telly. <laughs> I can't stand them. But if I were to win one, I don't really do reality TV. Nice. No, so you're not dancing on ice. You're not strictly. Oh, maybe, what's that one? The Max Singer? Oh, yeah, The Mars Singer. Okay. Yeah, I'm delighted with that one. <laughs> yeah. I am a bit silly. That will work for me. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, Kenny, what's your favourite comfort food of choice? Ah, pizza. Oh, do you have a favourite brand? Not endorsing them. Uh, I mean, all brands <laughs> are endorse good. them, just get the money. It's um, Domino's. <laughs> Domino's, I like Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say who it is just in case they get unwarranted advertising on this podcast. Excellent. Um, I'm going to ask this to both of you. What is happening in your life which most excites you right now? Tutu, do you want to go first? 
we're most excited about um we've just moved house in the last few months Ooh. and we're making changes so we're adapting it and all so i think that's exciting we make our life quite um when it's done it will make our life much easier i would say mm-hmm. yeah i mean same same it's just the ability where we now have our place we are now able to adapt it to fit our daughter's needs and us and, and, us. and our needs as well yeah so <laughs> Yeah, um, really excited, excited about that. Just a warning. So we moved into our bungalow and had it all adapted. And that's when the pair of us fell apart. Just to let you know, like eight years in, that's when we both <laughs> went and got counselling. Like, ladies and gentlemen, if you could see their faces now, they're like, what? We're not petrified at all. <laughs> I think it was like that we kind of work towards when someone's ends in school, when the youngest is in school, and when we've got these adaptations, it's going to be so much easier. And it's a little bit like, oh, oh, yes, it's still hard. Okay, maybe we need to reevaluate. And then we went over lots of our old kind of issues and traumas. Uh, maybe because we had the space to, because we weren't firefighting so many of the other yeah. logistics yeah. and everything. But yes, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah, exactly. Let's not worry about that yet. Oh, it's been so nice talking to you both. I can't believe the time together has ended already. We will put in the show notes um, lots of information about the Black Special Needs SEN Parents Group and the different forums and the places that you can find Kenny and Tutu. And we could even put a link to your SEN church so that people can, who might be in the area and find that helpful. And we can do that. It has been just lovely talking to you both. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, yes, have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you both. Bye. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The Skies Wonder podcast is a Born at the Right Time production supported by the expert studio assistants of Podshop. Thanks to our wonderful guests for sharing their stories and very precious time. And special thanks to the generosity of listeners whose donations have helped make this podcast. We would love it if you could like, follow and review the podcast wherever you listen. As part of season two, we have some great live events, including the really ropey idea of Sarah, Lucy and I being your agony aunts. Email your stories, comments and questions, either to tswupodcast at gmail.com to join in or follow us on Instagram at born at right time. We love you joining us for the ride as we hurtle along this off-piste version of parenting. It's so much better when we do it together. Whatever skies we're under.